Good morning. It's so good to be with you here this morning. Thank you so much for having us. We love you guys. Um, We're going to be sharing. I'm going to kick us off. Andrew's going to take over halfway through. And then we're going to finish with some Q&A. And we're going to share a little bit of our story, but mainly really within the context of the much bigger story of Jesus as the author and uh, and the perfecter of our faith, the grand storyteller. And um, I feel like camping has a particular relevance to what we're going to be sharing this morning because nothing really requires a grand story, a good narrative arc. Perhaps it even requires a spin doctor as much as a camping holiday. Yes, it was hard in the middle of the night when the wee bucket got knocked over and six people's urine spread across the tarpaulin. But if it hadn't happened, we never would have found that lost earring. We need a good, a strong narrative to get us through a Bible week, to get us through a camping holiday. And uh, I'm actually, I'm married to a glass half full narrator of all things, perhaps even a spin doctor. And he is continually narrating events in a way in which I do not recognize, despite having been present throughout. And uh, this, this was particularly relevant a couple of years ago at the end of the Christmas holidays, when I kept overhearing Andrew in the foyer at church or in various places, talking about what a triumph against the odds the Christmas holidays had been. What a wonderful break. How, how, how really it didn't look like it was going to go well, but actually in the end it was fantastic. During that Christmas fortnight, our boiler had broken in freezing temperatures. Four of the five of us had had D&V. And thanks to a buggy brake being left off, an eight-month-old had taken a dip in a lake. I won't tell you who left the buggy brake off. I will leave that anonymous. But it required two fully clothed adults to jump in after him. And I felt that even the Alistair Campbell-esque skills of Andrew Wilson could not narrate this as a positive two-week Christmas holiday. But actually, that desire to make sense of things and to narrate things, whether it's in a glass half full way like Andrew or a more glass half empty way like myself, is really common to all of us. We like beginnings, we like middles, we like ends, and our day and our lives become stories that are made up of days and weeks and months and years. Sometimes they feel like a tragedy, and on other days, they feel like a comedy. And our stories as individuals, as families, as churches, are actually form part of a much bigger and more meaningful story about the church, the kingdom of God, and the redemption of all things. We're storied creatures, and we make sense of what's happening to us by telling meaningful stories about it. The only problem with this is we are not the authors of our stories. We're characters in them, and we're not in control of the stories, and we can't always cast ourselves as the hero. We would love to be in a position to write for ourselves certain roles, but we're not, we're not creators, we're participants, we're characters, we're not the storyteller. 
Last year, we were, we were watching through Friends on Netflix, and there's a particular episode where Joey is an actor, and he's playing a character, Dr. Drake Ramore. And one day, he arrives on set to be horrified to find out that Dr. Drake Ramore is about to fall down an elevator shaft. And a little bit like Joey, we enter the set prepared and we've learned our lines. We've been taught them by our culture. We've been taught them through our education. We have a plan in our mind of what's going to happen. Only for us to enter the studio and find that we are a different script has been written and that we are improvising, often badly, unprepared for what's happened. And sometimes those deviations can be quite funny. The wee bucket falls over in the night. One day I will learn to laugh about Sam's Christmas Eve trip into the Tilgate Lake. <laughs> but other times they're not funny. Sometimes the deviations in our lives are really hard. A parent develops early onset dementia. A spouse betrays us. A false accusation is made. And actually your life story this morning might be a bit like that where it has deviated from what you had prepared for or expected. And you might have imagined certain scenes playing out in particular ways and being convinced that your character would do this or this in this particular scenario, only to find yourself unexpectedly pregnant, like Mary, or deported, like Daniel, or marrying a prostitute like Hosea, or falling down your own unique elevator shaft. For you, it could be a divorce, a bereavement, a redundancy, an accident, a moment of weakness, a disability. And for us, um, really, that deviation was about the age of two and a half. Our, uh, our son, his development just started to go into reverse, and he began to lose the skills he'd gained. Uh, he lost speech, motor skills, play skills, social skills. Everything seemed to go into reverse. And we had a daughter who was 18 months younger. And that summer, our lives just went up in the air, really. She started to have seizures and was diagnosed with epilepsy. Only for her to reach two and a half and for the same process to happen and her development to go into reverse, only more severely. And God has been good to us. Both of our children have a diagnosis of autism and epilepsy and various other things. And those, but those first few years for us were very painful. God has been good to us in it, but they were painful. There were lines that we had learned for parenting, for being leaders, that we suddenly found ourselves improvising, and often badly. If you've got a Bible, if you could turn to Hebrews 12. Because in Hebrews 12, we find a letter written to a group of believers whose story has not worked out the way that they wanted, the way they were expecting, and they have found themselves improvising on set, often badly. They're being opposed, they're being shamed and ostracized. Some had been thrown into prison, had property confiscated, to the extent that they were considering just throwing the whole thing in and giving up altogether. And Hebrews is written as a whole to encourage them, but also to confront them, to keep going. 
and as the letter kind of builds to its conclusion, if we could have it up on the screen, we've got Hebrews 12, verses 1 to 3. Therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us also lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God, For consider him who has endured such hostility by sinners against himself, so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. It's fascinating that in this, probably the punchline, the high point of the whole letter, these wavering believers who are tired and on the verge of giving up are encouraged to look to Jesus as the grand storyteller, the author, the perfecter of faith, And your translation might have founder, originator, the one who cooked the whole thing up. The point is that Jesus started to write this story. He started to write ours as well. We didn't. And Jesus is responsible for bringing that story, that race, to completion. Perfecter here has a sense of bringing to fullness, resolving, carrying the story to its final destination. We don't. So the person really responsible for shaping all the ups and downs of our lives into a meaningful narrative is not you and it's not me. It's the author and perfecter, the one who starts and ends the story, the alpha, the omega himself. And clearly there's enormous encouragement for these disciples in Hebrews 12 in knowing that Jesus is the storyteller and not me. And he's the storyteller. You're not the storyteller. But I don't know about you, I find that I try and resolve and narrate in a way that brings a happy ending, that delivers me a eureka moment, even with the children, where I think, ah, this, this is why it has all happened. Because I want a testimony that I can bring to the microphone next Sunday morning, please. And even in writing a book, And in speaking to you today, there's a temptation to redeem it and to make it all worthwhile and to make up for some of the pain of the last few years. We've actually, we're in a really beautiful, bittersweet stage of life at the moment because when we wrote the book, we had two children and we now have three children and our three-year-old is doing really well And that has been a gift of God to us. And his development has overtaken um, his sister. He'll bring her her water bottle. He'll interpret for her. She's Anna's nine and Sam's three. And he's a long way ahead of her developmentally. And he wants to help with looking after her. And that is just gorgeous. And it's beautifully bittersweet. It doesn't make up for anything. It is wonderful and gorgeous, and I'm so thankful for it, but I am looking for a day when it's sweet, sweet, when I get to have conversations with both of them and sit down and play cards or go on a camping holiday, all those things. I'm thankful for it, but I'm looking to another day as well. And actually, in ways of coping, when life takes an unexpected turn, we often want to redeem it ourselves. We write books, 
we start support groups, we raise awareness, we fundraise, we try to make sense of what's happened and to form it into a logical narrative arc. And all of those things are really good ways to deal with things when life takes an unexpected turn. In fact, we're instructed to comfort others with the same comfort that we've received. It's a godly, good instruction. But we're not promised in Scripture that that in itself will outweigh the pain. In fact, we're promised that there is an eternal weight of glory ahead of us that outweighs the pain of now. And we don't need to resolve it all ourselves. And we don't need to bring that microphone testimony um, the following Sunday. We can trust that an eternal weight of glory is coming that outweighs and makes seem transient and light the things of now. And lots of Jews in this period were trying to tell the story of God's purposes in a way that made sense of their their trials, their tribulation, their persecution. And it's what Job's friends do too. And God wasn't happy about that. He reminds us in Scripture, that's not your job. I am the author. I am the perfecter. I am the narrator and the grand storyteller. You are not. I love that comment that Dostoevsky makes about the problem of evil. It should come up on the screen. I believe that in the world's finale, at the moment of eternal harmony, something so precious will come to pass that it will suffice for all hearts, for the comforting of all resentments, for the atonement of all the crimes of humanity, for all the blood that they've shed, that it will make not only possible to forgive, but to justify all that has happened. And there will be a finale, a resolution. We look to a day that will make sense of everything. But it does come then and not now, and it comes through him, the author, the perfecter, who has the power to bring the whole story to a joyful and satisfactory resolution. I'm just gonna pass over to Andrew now before we take some questions at the end. I should probably come clean. Um, I imagine you guessed who was responsible for not just leaving the brake off on the buggy, but turning away and having a conversation with my nephew while suddenly this sort of roly-roly is taking place behind me. My brother actually is the one who noticed. If I, he'd probably still be down there if I hadn't had my brother there as well. And he suddenly went, oh, and the two of us leap in and pull out the buggy. So I still managed to, sit, to spin it well. But you, I, don't know if you, I don't know which side you're on, but I do find that temptation. I'm really like that. I want to turn everything to good now. I want to say, actually, it was great because, and I find this image of Jesus as, I learned it from Rachel, and genuinely, she, it was her terminology, Jesus tells the big story, and we often try and become that person, and what we need is to acknowledge that even though there is little moments of redemption in the here and now, and praise God for that, like, receive them as gifts, but that's, Ultimately, it's never going to be enough. The, the things we do to make sense of the challenges we face in life are never big enough to bring the redemptive moment that we want and that our hearts crave, and rightly so, because a much bigger redemption that is beyond our power is to come. And one of the things about stories, oh, by the way, you know that we're going, to do, we're going to do a few questions at the end. I should probably just say that if, we, uh, if what we'll probably do is put a microphone down here and we can just take questions and discuss anything that you would like to talk about really off the back of this. But one of the things that you have to know about in a story is where you are in it. And if you don't know where you are in a story, you can often find it meaningless or even very frustrating to encounter the story. So if you were to pick up a book and read 10 pages of it, but without knowing what came before or after, it would not be satisfying. 
And if you don't know if you're at the beginning, the middle, or the end, it doesn't feel like it's making sense to us. And of course, because we're storied creatures, we need to know where we are in the ark. There was a whole bunch of people who went to watch the Fellowship of the Ring when the Lord of the Rings movies came out without knowing that the Lord of the Rings was a three-part thing. And of course, the, the movie doesn't actually tell you that it is. So if you had never read the Lord of the Rings, you didn't know it was a three-part movie, and you went and sat, spent three hours watching this thing with you know, the orcs and Boromir and the chaser, dum, 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 and Mr. Frodo. And at the very end of it, it ended with Sam and Frodo just getting into a boat and just paddling down a river. But like, what, what on earth was that? What a waste of three hours of my life. And there was a lot of people who did. And then obviously, a lot of people online would make fun of how dim they were for not knowing. And, but to be fair, it may have been some of you, I don't know. The point is, it's very unsatisfying when you don't know when a story's going to resolve. And obviously, it's in a sense, you have to, if you watch The Fellowship of the Ring, and if you haven't, you, you should, um, but if you watch it, you have to know this is part one of three, and the arc is much longer than you realize. And what we do, if we're not careful, is we live the human life, even the Christian life, as if it's going to resolve now, and then when it slightly unsatisfactorily ends with people paddling down a river, we say, what was that? That did not, that, some of you have had this with healing, right? I'm not going to ask for a clapometer here. But as a pastor, I've met people who've been healed dramatically, and then it's come back. The thing they were healed from. They've, they would say, have I lost my healing? I don't know. Pastorally, there's all kinds of questions that raises for me, but if we're expecting the answer to all of the questions in our story to be resolved by the end of the first movie before the end of the return of the king, we can't make sense of it at all. And in a sense, I have to say pastorally at that point, well, do you know what? There's a sense in which all of us are going to lose all of our healing one day because we're going to die. And it's only on the other side of that that we will be everlastingly healed forever. And I have to know that. And if I don't know that, I'm going to find myself often hoping that this new resolution is going to be the answer. And then I'm going to look the other side of it and realize, hang on a second, there were unsatisfying things about that resolution to the story. And it's the same with our life stories. Same with the story of what God's doing in the world. We've got to know where we are in the narrative or we're going to misunderstand it and we're going to have no stickability or patience to cope with it. And there's a lot of things about our cultural moment that make that very hard, right? Where we, where we live in history and in probably most of us living in Britain, there's a lot of things about even being alive now here that make it harder than most people have found it to avoid rushing to the end and seeing resolution happen instantly. We have, for a few things make it difficult. We have enough to eat, that's a very practical point, but most people in human history have not had enough to eat, and we do. So we're not used to the dynamic of longing and anticipation and desperation, and then, ah, oh, I've been satisfied, but within a few hours, the longing begins again. We're not used to that dynamic, most of us. In fact, probably hardly any of us are. It's not the daily rhythm of our lives, so we don't have what many, in many ways the Jews had, or what most people in history have had, which is an awareness that not, when you suddenly find your need met, it doesn't necessarily mean the problems end. And so we have that challenge. We have a challenge, we, a sense, a challenge, I'm grateful for it, but a challenge in which we are largely free from pain, most of us. And so those of us even who wrestle with long-term pain, there are still things to some degree that we can do about that. We have antibiotics and anesthetics and so on. So 
Most of us, when we experience discomfort, we assume this is a very short-term thing that will be over very quickly. And then when we encounter, as a friend of mine is at the moment, long-term pain that is not, doesn't seem to be going anywhere, many of us are emotionally unprepared for the dynamic that is at work there in a way that many of our fellow humans in history haven't been because that's been part of the experience of their lives from very, very young. So we have a few things that make it harder for us not to resolve the story to a happy ending very quickly. Most of us are richer and have a higher standard of living than our parents or grandparents. We have instant technology and products which make it very easy to immediately get what we want. Some of you will, you know, you, you roll your eyes and, and start blustering and getting angry if the Wi-Fi doesn't work immediately and you can't get information from Australia right now. You think, well, most people would, in history wouldn't have known that Australia was there and the ones who did, it would have taken six weeks and we get very angry if it's not there in 20 seconds. So there's a lot of things in our lives that make us want to resolve the story now. And when things get really difficult, as they still do, we want to resolve the story immediately and we are conditioned by our culture to think that life is a 10-minute comic strip when actually it's a massive epic that lasts into eternity, actually. And there's, it's a complex, multi-layered epic of redemption that doesn't resolve very quickly. And that's what God's story is like. And as Rachel's been saying, we live in the middle of it while things are still kicking off rather than at the end of it when we all live happily ever after. And God knew we would find that hard, so he gave us some pictures to help us understand the nature of the Christian life, the nature of the story that we're in. I can think of four in particular that the New Testament used, and I want to sort of open them up for a moment just so we can see the way that the New Testament writers tried to help us think about the shape of the story of the Christian life. There are about at least four I can think of in the New Testament, and two of them are right here in Hebrews 12, 1 to 3. Right, the first illustration for thinking about our lives and our stories is that of a race, right? You notice that I'm sure in chapter 12, let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. That's Paul's vision of the, uh, sorry, Hebrews' vision of the Christian life, and Paul's as well actually, is that you're running a long distance race, and it is a race which requires endurance. It's not a sprint. It's not something where you go, to be honest, I finished the race before I was even that aware that I was running, just only took 10 seconds. No, this is not that kind of race. This is a race where you are at that point in the London Marathon when instead of turning left towards Hyde Park, you actually turn right and go down into the Isle of Dogs and you're, everything in your body wants to go left and you turn right instead and the lactic acid is building. It's the moment in the race when Mo Farah is still at the back. You think, what's he doing? Is he going to lose? But he's at the back of the race because he's waiting and biding his time. And, and your lactic acid is building and everything in your body is saying, no, 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 I do not want to keep doing this. That's the kind of life that we live in the Christian story. It's a life of a long-distance race. And knowing that it's a long race is very important because it means we don't get disillusioned by delay. It's one of the things many of us had. I don't know how far you traveled to get here, but many of us would have encountered... The A35 or the A303 or the M5 or the A30 or something like that and would have experienced the dreaded words from behind us, are we nearly there yet? We're like, we haven't reached the end of our own streets. We are nowhere, nowhere, nowhere near nearly there yet. Please be quiet. Why didn't you bring the headphones or why didn't you bring whatever it is? And that, that kind of dynamic is very familiar to those of us who drive with children, but actually in the Christian life we have the same thing, don't we? 
Are we nearly there? Lord, come on, is it nearly there? Now, it's good, in a sense, to ask, how long, O Lord? That's a good cry from the heart. But you need to know as well that the delay of the waiting for all things to be made new is built in to the experience of the Christian life. It is a race. It's going to take a long time. And a lot of the time in between, we will be filled with lactic acid, hanging in there in the face of, and celebrating the good moments and enjoying it as best we can, rejoicing in God. But knowing ultimately there is always going to be a delay. There's a race to run. So our story is like a race. There's four images. First one, it's like a race. Second image of the Christian life, which also comes from Hebrews 12, is our story is actually like the gospel. It's like the story of what Jesus did, which is what, again, the writer of Hebrews wants us to draw strength from the example of Jesus' life and say, that's what your life's like too. They say, fixing our eyes on Jesus the author and perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such hostility by sinners against himself so that you won't grow weary and lose heart. Right? So he's picturing the Christian life as a race, long way, but he's also picturing your life as like the sufferings and vindication of Jesus. He's saying this is what's going to happen to you too that you need to consider Jesus because your life's like that. And you will find yourself torn sometimes, thinking, do I care more about the sufferings I'm in now or the joy I will inherit then? Am I able to compare them and see that the joy is far greater than the shame, so I will despise the shame of the cross, which is what Jesus did, and pursue the joy? Interestingly, if you know Hebrews 12, you'll know that the writer does something very clever because a few verses later, he flips the image and gives us an example of an anti-Jesus and says, there is somebody in the Bible, the writer says, who is a brilliant example of someone who does the opposite. Someone who concludes, hang on a second, the short-term discomfort I'm in is very valuable and the long-term benefit of eternal joy is trivial to me. And his name was Esau. And we read about him in verses 14 to 17 of the same chapter, and the writer uses the same construction, but in reverse. Jesus, for the joy, scorned the shame of the cross. Esau, for soup, scorned his birthright. And the comparison we're being asked to make is, are you, are you a Jesus or an Esau? Can you weigh up perspective? Can you weigh up this short-term suffering in light of the glorious long-term eternal future? And if you can't, and you end up thinking, do you know what? Soup, far more important than birthright. If you make that comparison, you will find yourself losing your inheritance, losing all of the good God means to do you. But Jesus did the opposite. Jesus realized that although the cross was agonizing, it was temporary, and that the joy set before him, by the way, by which he means you guys, and billions of others he saved, the joy set before him was worth far, far more than the, the, the cross or the soup. And so your life and my life are like a race, but they're also like the gospel. There is a, these light and momentary afflictions are achieving for us a weight of glory beyond all comparison. And so we have the life, life is like a race. Life is like the gospel, and that helps us when it comes to Jesus telling our story as the author and perfecter. You think, that's the kind of narrative I'm in, and I need to know that so I don't expect it to resolve too quickly. The third example of four, right? Our life is like a race. It's like the gospel. It's also like a war, right? Hebrews doesn't use this picture, 
but Paul does quite a lot. Put on the armor of God, act like soldiers, demolish strongholds. Christ leads us in triumphal procession, in victorious train. You've got to know that you are in a war and that there are people or spirit principalities and powers who are trying to kill you and that there is a victorious Christ who will deliver you, but for now you are still living in a battle of, a, on a battlefield. And that image is very important for those of us who live in peacetime, which looking at that average age in this room is pretty much all of us, although a handful of us will remember living at war. Most of us have not experienced war. And so we find this image hard to grasp again. It's not something that comes naturally to me. But because we find it difficult to imagine what it's like to be at war where everything about your daily life is thrown into the war effort, even the kind of food you eat or don't eat is bound up with this much larger war that's being fought. But you and I don't live in that kind of culture. So when the Bible talks that way, we often find it hard to connect emotionally with the image. My friend Simon Holly, who I know will be known to some of you, he has this phrase that he often uses. He says, you were born on a battleship. You were not born on a cruise ship. It's just a way he's trying to get people to realize, you've got to realize the Christian life, you have been born onto a warship that is having things fired at it all the time and is firing back. And if you don't know that and you think you're on a cruise ship, then when something goes wrong, you will not know how to cope with it. And the apostles regularly talk like this. They say, don't be surprised at the fiery trial. As if something weird was happening. This is life, right? Life's war. And the cruise ship picture really struck with me because I... I got, I got very delayed on a cruise ship once. I say very delayed. I was on a journey from Denmark to Harwich, and I was delayed by 17 hours. I basically lost an entire day of my life because the, the waves were so bad that the ship had to drop anchor for 17 hours. And no one knew because we'd all gone to sleep. And we come down to breakfast the next morning, and there is an announcement in Danish over the Tannoy. And at the end of the announcement, all of the Danish-speaking people on the ship going, no! over breakfast and all of the English people are going what on earth did they say and then the translation comes through and says yeah sorry we're going to arrive in Harwich 17 hours late and people are going I was on my way back to I'm going to be at work today and I, you know I'm not going to be there until tomorrow uh, and then all the English people go no why God why and things like that so I've experienced delay on a cruise ship my dad by comparison got delayed for six weeks on a ship because he happened to be sailing from Hong Kong back to Britain in 1956 when NASA closed the Suez Canal. And so the, I now think, 17 hours? How do you live like this? My dad was a boy, and he was sailing back to Britain, and they had sailed up the east coast of Africa uh, when the Suez Canal got closed. And unfortunately, if the Suez Canal is closed, there's nothing for it, guys, but to go the whole way around Africa. And he arrived six weeks late as a result. Now, at that point, I feel like there's probably a lot of very, very angry passengers saying, I haven't just lost a day. I've lost six weeks of my life. What are you going to do about it? And again, they would have been saying, no, what's going on? So that's me, my 17-hour delay, and I grumble. And my dad and his six-week delay, and probably a lot of people grumbled. But my grandpa got delayed for three and a half years coming home because he was on a battleship. My grandpa was on a battleship in the sea off Japan, and his ship got sunk, and he got captured, and he was in a POW camp for three and a half years. And his family didn't know what had happened to him. And when he eventually got home, he was half the size, literally half the size he had been. And there was a sense there in which his expectation of what he was doing when he got on a battleship meant that although his delay was immeasurably worse, in many ways he was less surprised 
because he knew that life was war, because he went to sea in 1941. And my dad went to sea in 1956, and I went to sea in, hardly going to sea, is it, 1994 or something? And so I'm expecting life to be like this, and then when it's a little bit inconvenient, I freak out. My grandfather goes expecting I may lose my life, and the fact that I got home still alive is pretty amazing. And he got to live to the age of 80-odds. And that, I tell that because I think it can help us sometimes to realize the New Testament pictures us like my grandfather and not like me and not like my dad. That's not the world of New Testament Christianity. It is you are at war. There are shells being fired at you. you your ship is, the devil is out to sink you, sink your ship, sink your faith. And actually for us to stand and to recognize that dynamic, even when our culture is actually very prosperous and peaceful, is incredibly important to understanding. So our culture says things are going to be straightforward and comfortable, and the Bible says, no, 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 it won't. So our, our story, in that sense, like a race, it's like the gospel, it's like a war. And then the final story the New Testament uses, or the other, final one I, I can think of in this context, is that our story is like childbirth. This is an image Jesus uses to the disciples in the farewell discourse in John 16. He says, when a woman's giving birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come. Some of you have been there, right? Sorrow because your hour has come. It's agonizing. But when she has delivered the baby, Jesus says, she no longer remembers the anguish for joy that a human being has been born into the world. So also you have sorrow now, but I'll see you again, and your hearts will rejoice, and no one will take your joy from you. I find that an astounding picture of the Christian life, that Jesus is saying to his disciples, you are like women in labor. That's the picture I want you to have. If you think war is like a sort of martial man image, you're saying, I want you to think about yourself as a pregnant woman. And I want you to recognize that the travails of this age are going to come to all of you. And as you're in them, you will feel like my hour of sorrow has come. But there is a day to come when you will see me again and you will rejoice so much that you'll forget all about the anguish of childbirth. And instead, no one will take your joy away from you. Paul uses the same picture in Romans 8. He says, this is, the whole creation has been groaning together. <laughs> All that stuff, I won't dramatize it too much, but you've, again, many of you have been there, and if you haven't, you've seen it on the TV, and believe me, it's much worse to watch in real life than on the TV. Very nice to us on television. And as you're in that, in the throes of agony, Paul says, this creation's like that. This creation has been groaning in the pains of childbirth until now, and not only creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we await eagerly our adoption as sons and the redemption of our bodies. We are anticipating that day. When it comes, we won't care about the pain. But for now, we're still in it. And in a sense, the Christian who does not live with their eyes fixed on God's resolution of the story, the perfecter of our faith, if we don't bear that in mind, we are as crazy as a woman who goes through labor indefinitely without ever producing a child. Imagine you volunteered for that. I know sometimes tragically that happens, but I mean, somebody who said, I'm signing up for this, this is what I want. I want to live my life in perpetual labor, no child. You'd say, what are you doing? You've misunderstood the relationship between the pain and the joy. And Jesus and Paul say to us, you've got to understand that's your lifetime is that of living in labor, wait, and no doubt there are moments in labor, it ebbs and flows, there's 
as we've just heard from Tim, there's plenty of gas and air available, and sometimes there are moments actually where it feels quite calm, and then there are other moments where it feels intense. The Christian life's like that. It, it's not all intense agony, but the joy that compensates for the pain does not come until new life breaks forth from within the old, until new creation comes, and when it does, suddenly your sorrow turns to joy forever. Brothers and sisters, we are storied creatures. We live in a story, we live by stories, and when things don't turn out as we hope, when we are unexpectedly unemployed or single or bereaved or become carers or disabled or whatever it may be, we often try and reshape the story ourselves. And some of the ways we do that are okay. And they may even be very good. But they're never quite enough. And that's because the stories that we live in are like races and they're like the gospel and they're like war and like childbirth. They are epic narratives that haven't yet reached the finish line or the victory salute or the moment of birth or Easter Sunday. But they will. We know they will because Christ has indeed been raised from the dead and the Spirit has come as a down payment guaranteeing what's to come. In the end, we cross the finishing line. The enemy is defeated. The new life of new creation is handed to us and we say, I can't believe it's here. And the tomb is empty. But in the meantime, our job is to persevere, to renounce our claim to write our own script and spin our own ending, and to trust the storyteller, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despised the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Amen? I'm going to pray. I'm going to Rachel come out, and we're going to take a, a few questions if you'd like to do that. And if no one asks anything, that's fine too. We'll just leave for an early lunch. Um, but there's going to be a microphone just down here. And if you want to come up just so we can all hear you, that might be good. But I'd love to pray for us just before we do that. Father, we thank you so much for the story that you are writing. I often don't see it. I often live blinded by my issues or my daily experience. But you are a good, merciful, kind, and ultimately all-knowing and all-powerful storyteller who is working things into a resolution that I can only dream of. No mind has conceived what God has prepared for those who loved him. And Lord, we ask that you would enable those of us who are living in the middle of our race, while the war is still raging, while labor is still going on, to be able to live mindful of that day and to persevere like Jesus and to fix our eyes on him. And we pray this in his precious name. Amen. Amen. Okay. If, Rach, do you want to come up and then we will, we'll do this together? If people have got questions, there is a microphone right here. And they could be questions about what we've said or they could be questions about anything else. Except, please, please don't ask me to do an impersonation of labor because I've got in trouble for doing that one before. But anything else, basically. Hi. I just wondered if you'd mind telling us how it's been for your marriage and how you've coped particularly in your marriage with what's happened with your children. I'm particularly interested in Rachel's take on it. Thank you. <laughs> I'm not surprised. <laughs> Shall I kick off and then you finish? Yeah, it's been really, really challenging um, for sure, particularly because I think we had quite an idealistic view um, of um, the way in which we would split childcare or... Even when they became diagnosed, we had an idea of splitting medical appointments. So maybe I would do everything developmental and Andrew would do everything medical. And that really didn't pan out because as it turns out, you end up 
um, really carrying your children's medical histories in one of your heads, and in, in our case, that's been ma mainly in my head. So the consequence of that, I think, was that our lives became more and more different from each other. And that was the biggest challenge that we faced. Um, because Andrew, at that point, was still um, was traveling quite a lot. And my life was very home-based. And I was taking on board a lot of um, new information from professionals and all that sort of thing. But we weren't integrating it into our way in which we both parented. So that then created conflict mm. as well. Things definitely came to a head for us, probably. We went through a, a difficult stage, which we write about. We write about this in the book, um, probably about 2013, where we thought we radically have to rethink life to make our lives more like each other's um, and to put quite, for us, quite drastic things into place um, in order to feel like a partnership and for this not to become a wedge, really, between mm. us. Do you want yeah. to talk about that? Yeah, yeah. No, that, that's brilliantly stated. I was very slow on the uptake um, as to how much life needed to change. I think I would have... And many of us would know this in our own circumstances. You, you try and carry on rough, with roughly the life that you, the script that you had anticipated, and you don't realise that you're actually falling down an elevator shaft, and you're still acting as if you still got your lines. And I, I took a lot, and eventually I think it had to, it broke, and Rachel was just like, "This cannot go on. This cannot go on." It was, a, it was a horrible time, and I think I then I realised much too late how drastic what had happened to us, at least then, had meant for our lives and as we've said we in a way we're in a slightly different season now and things are the fact that we're able to do this together but this would have been out of the question in fact I wouldn't have done something like this a few years ago uh, let alone both of us so I think we've we've seen some of that come back but at the time I think I as the guy was trying to carry on living as if everything was fine and I was probably I was the problem there I think and eventually came to realize much too late that we just needed to give up a lot more, and that a lot more of the dreams that we'd had had to die, and uh, even about very ordinary things. Um, and I think there was a, yeah, there's a bit of an Ephesians 5 thing in the end, I think, is you, you have to, you lay down your life, don't you? And I think that's, that's I realized much too late what that was going to involve in my case. Um, so yeah, it's fine to preach it in theory, but when you do it, it's, it's somewhat different, isn't it? So yeah. Steve. Hi, so when you find those moments where, moments of life when you, you didn't write the script. This isn't panning out as you planned, hoped. Uh, and how you handle that, some of the illustrations you've used, you know, the, we live in British culture, s stiff upper lip. How, you know, how do we respond? Uh, the Bible's full of really helpful, um, a broad range of responses. Can you just give us some helpful advice? Because I guess lots of people here struggle with... Mm. I feel guilty responding this way. Mm. Can you give us some helpful advice, uh, mm. perhaps insights into how we handle some of those moments in a godly way? Yeah. I mean, the Bible's yeah. full of laments, for example. Yeah. Do you want to? I think God's so gracious and so kind to us that even um, in our grief between the two of us, there was a real period of grief, and actually, there still is sometimes at various milestones and things. I think it does still hit us again. Um, but God's so gracious because he allows us to grieve in quite godly ways that can be very different depending upon our personalities. So for Andrew, that grief was more apocalyptic. So he's like glass half full most of the time until he's very much not glass half full and then it would be like total apocalypse. And he would, but then he would bounce back quite quickly. For me, I'm a, a bit more like middle of the road, so it, was, um, it would be much more of a slow burn 
thing of a, da a daily grind and really, and I, it would take me longer to get back and it would take me longer to go down. Um, but God's been gracious to us through very different personalities in that. And I think the, for us, even like the five stages of grief was really helpful and really relevant. So just taking tools from the world as well and looking at um, them in scripture has, has been helpful as well in terms of understanding how to process um, to process grief. I don't mm. know if that's a helpful. I, mean, we, I, I, I spent quite a while thinking about, there was Psalm 130 is probably the biblical text that's helped me the most along with the childbirth picture. Psalm 130 was a very short psalm just about the, what happens when we, we cry. We structured our whole book around it. The idea that we cry, we're weeping, and then turn to worshipping, and then turn to waiting, and then finally turn to witnessing. And I think one of the challenges we found is, and I find even with a pastor hat on as well, is that many of us are not inclined to think that it's okay just to howl at God and to grieve and that often we want to get, like we've been saying today, really want to get to the last page where we can witness very quickly and that I think recognizing it's okay for years to go, this is not okay. I'm not okay. This is really awful. And many of us, many of you are in situations far worse than ours and to just live with, I don't have to try and make it sound like this is fine. But at the same time, I can, while wailing, weeping, I can also worship, and I'm spending my life waiting for the redemption. It's only really when that's all coming together in my life that I begin to witness and say, this is what God's done. And I think for me, at a personal level, trying not to do what we've just been talking about and spin the ending, and instead saying, we're here, in this, and this is terrible, was actually very important. And I found it in our, I think that's, in British culture, generally, we don't lament that well, because, you know, funerals are out of, out of sight, and you know, people who are aged and dying are often out of sight as well. So we're not very aware of it. But in charismatic Christianity, it can almost make it worse because we're so used to triumph and victory and breakthrough and healing. And we believe in those things that that can make worse a cultural trend that's already there, which is of an inability to cope with the fact that this world is often very sad and that you need to be able to come to terms with that and cry. And that's something that British charismatic Christians are probably at least we were, unusually ill-prepared for. And so I think in some ways, step one, learning to grieve is probably where it begins. So if, that, if that's a helpful start, anyway. Uh, yeah, thank you so much for sharing everything. Just, I, I wonder, obviously, having been through all the things you've been through, do you, have you had to confront a sense of doom and dread you know, for the next disaster that's coming? And, and if so, how have you processed that and dealt with it? <laughs> Depends yeah. who you're asking. Yeah. <laughs> I'm like, it'll be yeah. fine. Yeah. But, uh, Do you know what? There was, there's a Lutheran hymn that, because I really identify with that feeling of dread. Um, and uh, this Lutheran hymn helped me so much. It says, you fearful saints, fresh courage take. These clouds you so much dread are filled with mercy and will break with blessing on your head. And that was such an encouragement to me because... Um, particularly with our third child. Um, we've had, there is nothing genetically um, different. So there was a real, it was quite a step of faith for us. Um, but to get to two and a half and then to get to three was emotionally really challenging because we didn't know. That as he gained each skill, we didn't know that it would stay. And it was quite easy to live under clouds of dread. And God spoke to me so clearly through that hymn because I was dreading appointments, and even with each skill that he gained, um, was, a, was almost a pain with it, feeling like this is gonna be so hard when this goes. 
when he stops talking. I was like, this is going to be so hard. And um, God spoke to me so clearly of his mercy, no matter what happened, whether he, whether he lost the skills, whether he continued to gain skills, the clouds were filled with mercy mm-hmm. and they were going to break with blessing on my head. And that's been true for all of our children. The clouds have broken with mercy on our head. And I've tried to, and God spoke to me really clearly about it. You need to put down your bags of dread. In a Christian meeting, he said, you put down the bags of dread, you pick up bags of faith, and you walk out with them. That there's mercy, whichever way this goes, there's mercy. Yeah, that's but, a really good answer. Yeah. Uh, I don't know whether I will put my question to you properly, but uh, I just wanted you to tie in the the life that I never expected with your parents. Because personally, I am a grandmother, so, uh, and I have an autistic grandchild, and that's why I came to England. He was not even talking when I came. Then I went, I didn't know, you know, in Africa, we don't know anything about autism. And it takes a long time to have it diagnosed. So the life that I never expected as a grandmother and what I went through. But uh, my grandson is talking. I made him, I believed God will make him talk. So I kept on speaking to him and teaching him the alphabet and teaching him the animals uh, that are in Africa and what they are called and so forth. But I don't know what uh, you went through with, uh, you are going through with the children. And uh, I don't know what your parents went through. Mm. Yeah, yeah. Um, I think our, our, we've had a, a very little, a very small amount of of engagement with the challenges faced in different cultures with handling special needs and learning difficulties. Um, but the church I'm now part of in London is, is very diverse, and actually, cult- different cultures handle issues of learning difficulties in very different ways. We are, I, th- I think, very blessed in Britain. I think the care for it is very high, which means in our particular case, although I think the grandparents probably got there at different speeds, and we got there at different speeds. I took longer to reconcile myself to what was happening than Rachel did, and then probably Rachel's parents and my parents came at different speeds as well. But I think in general in British culture, there's quite a lot of understanding. that The word is meaningful. People have some degree of understanding already. Most of us do. Um, And so that was actually in some ways helped us. And one of the things we found is that friends of ours who've been overseas, either native to another nation or who've moved moved abroad, have found that those challenges can be much greater where the culture at, at large does not think in those terms perhaps and there is not the provision that we have here. And that can make things much more complicated. And I think in many ways, you're wanting to help take people. You, you can't usually take people from no awareness to totally understanding it in a, in a jump. And often what's happening is a much longer process of reconciliation. Sometimes it simply starts with simply everything's not quite as it should be, but I'm not going to try and give it a label. And then it might be after a few months to say, well, these are some things that our child is really struggling with that many children don't. And then it might take a while longer before a diagnosis of any sort is talked about. And I, I think there's wisdom there. In fact, the healthcare professionals we met did the same with us. And they actually, before they gave us a diagnosis, they began talking to us about how do you understand what's going on with your kids? How do you read it? I think they're trying to read us and recognize, are we ready yet to hear what's going on? And I think there's wisdom in that approach. So I think that can be helpful, particularly with managing family members and those from perhaps other cultures as well. Okay. 
grandparents have been an enormous blessing yeah. to us as well. Yeah. Um, I think they've had faith to pray when we sometimes haven't had faith to pray yeah. as well for things. And, um, and they've been an, a huge encouragement um, to us. So I think grandparents have such a role and wider family have a role yeah. really in, in coming in and coming and supporting. Hi, um, so I'm a single mum to four kids who all have autism spectrum diagnoses and some other issues alongside. And um, life can be great, but it can also be really, really tough. And um, I guess listening to you talking about how, you know, the long term, we have to have this long term view and seeing that things will be kind of redeemed and okay in the end. And I believe that wholeheartedly, I do. But I guess. I wonder what are the things that keep you going and, and how do you keep that faith um, and that, that long view in the moment when everything's collapsing and going wrong and you kind of look at your kids and you don't think and you can't see how they're going to have the future that you'd hope for them. Thanks. Yeah, and I think, so one of our, obviously we do have, the, you try and keep our eyes fixed on eternity, but we're also praying your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We want to see that eternal perspective fast forwarded into the now. And that kind of kingdom uh, mentality way of thinking has really helped me in the way I pray for our children as well, because I'm praying for the kingdom to come in them that where the seeds of autism have been planted, that doesn't mean that I don't, I'm not reconciled to the fact that that means ang uh, you know, crippling anxiety for the rest of their lives. I'm asking God for the kingdom to come and for, that, for um, him to come into the present and for, that, for peace and for increased government in their mind as well. It says that the of the increase of his government, there will be no end. I like, my children's minds are just wonderfully complex. Our son is like... We, it's like a firework going off in the downstairs toilet. There is a lot of activity going on there, but it needs some government. And it needs some, and the government and the kingdom of God. And so that's the way in which we tend to pray. I think also, um, and I'm sure you're the same, celebrating the milestones. Um, we've really tried to record and to, whether that's animate great eye contact on the trampoline, we've got a constant list on the fridge. We take a lot of photos of the good moments because we really need them. We need to remember that happened and that was a real triumph for them. Our mm. son went to his first football game. That was, wow, that was a big deal for him to get there and to do that. Because I think sometimes I become forgetful as well of all that God has done mm. and how far he's brought, up, mm. brought us. So I think remembering all of those milestones, those triumphs, has really given, been a source of faith for the future. Um, but absolutely, I think it is, it is really challenging. The future for us, um, particularly for our daughter, is really unclear. I can't, I couldn't tell you 20 years down the line um, where we'll be at. Yeah. Um, I think the only thing I'd add is just the, is the call for help and the amount of help that we've received yeah. from family members, as we just mentioned. I mean, there's people, there's people here, there's a couple we saw here last night, in fact, the mum and dad of Tim, who is preaching just now, um, and their help to us as a couple, they were pastors in our church along with us, and their help to us, and uh, many people actually like that who were just so with us and through it, and it sometimes is very practical help. I think, actually, again, some of us are just going, I'm supposed to be able to cope, 
Um, I'm supposed to be able to get this together and I'll put on a good face. And I think sometimes I go, I, I am really struggling here and I need help with this, this and this. And I know I'm prepared to carry a lot of the challenge as well. But here, it would make a huge difference to me if someone could help me with that or that or that. Yeah. And identifying the that is important and then being able to ask for it. And it so for, I don't want to make it look like it was just us yeah. and then God and yeah. somehow I, yes. for us it was just we had a multitude of people and there still are um, particularly single friends who've been invaluable to us who are carrying some of it with us and who are able to help with the children. I mean, it, yeah, it's, it's yeah. huge. So being in a church and having people around you who understand what's happening is, is critical as well. So. Yeah, I think for a long time I... Um, over-spiritualize things and say, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And I'd be chasing one kid and then another kid was running for the lake. And I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me, including humble myself and ask for help. Yes. So, yeah. <laughs> we probably better make this the last question, yeah. I think. Is that, yeah. Uh, I hope it's a quick one. Um, in your book, Incomparable, you talk about 60 characteristics and names for God. In your experience, in your time, which has become your favorite? Great question. My favorite aspect. This is a little, okay. Facetiously, uh, this is a little bit like there was a. <laughs> can I tell the story about. No, no. No, okay, I can't. All right. <laughs> Some of you will know me well enough to ask me that story later, but this is, this is going out to people who are not in the room, and I think it's probably think wise it's, to is suppress this that. Me ask, is this me asking you who your favorite member of the Trinity was? It may have been, yes. <laughs> yes. I may have run down the hall screaming, heresy, heresy, as Rachel said to me. Andrew, which is your favorite member of the Trinity? <laughs> so anyway, um, but uh, attributes of God, um, I think I've, that to me, the hot, the, there's a, it's a little bi bipolar, I suppose. I think the, the holiness of God and the fatherhood of God and, and somehow trying to see them both together, but finding that it's just like a, an enormous thing that you can't ever see the whole of at once. But I think I, I oscillate between passages, even like the one I preached last night, I think that those passages, I'm all really drawn to that, the grandeur and the otherness of God, but at the same time, the fact that God is my Father who, to whom I can pray, Abba, I just, yeah, those two together, I suppose, for me. Yeah, yeah I think the faithfulness of God has been something I've really clung to from generation to generation. One of the biggest um, challenges you face, I think, as a special needs parent is um, knowing that you are not, they are gonna, those children are gonna outlive you and that you are not gonna be present, but he is. And so the faithfulness of God from generation to generation has been something I've really needed to depend upon and cling to, that I am not the hero of the story, I can't redeem it, I can't fix it, but you will be present even when I cannot be present. Mm. And that you see, um, even when I cannot see. In fact, actually, the, God's ability to see at all times mm. is something that I am really thankful for because there are uh, many accidents and all those sort of, we've lost children multiple, multiple times. And uh, he knows where they are, yeah. even when we don't know, yeah. even when they are, where they are. So yeah. I'm thankful for that. Yeah. Let's, show, let's show our appreciation. Thank you so much. Thank you.